Welcome to our weekly podcast. We're in week four of a message series called Marks of a Healthy Church. For several weeks this summer, we're talking about some of the essential marks or characteristics that all healthy churches have in common. These are the things that the early church was devoted to and the things that we're called to be devoted to as well. So far, we've talked about the essential marks of biblical preaching and teaching and authentic biblical community or fellowship. Now, if you've missed any of the past messages in this series, I want to encourage you to go back and listen through our weekly podcast. You're listening to the podcast today, so you know that we pre-record the sermon each week, and then we upload it to our podcast. You can always go back and listen to any of the messages that you might have missed. The podcast is also a great way to introduce someone to OCC for the very first time. So if you have family or friends who are looking for a church to call home, or you know someone who needs the Lord and they need to be in church, introduce them to the podcast. Encourage them to listen to a message. Today we're going to continue our series by looking at another essential mark that all healthy churches have in common. So if you have a Bible with you, please turn with me to Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47. And we're also going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, so you can save both of those places. Acts chapter 2, 42 through 47, this is our key passage for this series. In fact, all the marks that we're talking about this summer are clearly seen in this passage and in the example of the early church. So as I read from Acts chapter 2 today, see if you can identify the mark that we're going to focus in on. Acts chapter 2, 42 through 47, this is what we read. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Today's mark is found in verses 44 and 45. This is what we read. It says, All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Friends, the early church was marked by sacrificial generosity. Sacrificial generosity. In the book of Acts and throughout the rest of the New Testament, we read about how these early believers would bring their resources together, would actually share what they had for the good of one another. I mean, people were doing some pretty crazy things like selling their homes, selling the land that they had, other possessions, just so they could provide for the needs of other believers. These first century Christians give us a powerful picture of sacrificial generosity. You and I live in one of the wealthiest countries on the planet. I mean, we have access to things like clean drinking water, sufficient food and clothing. Most people in this area have a roof over their head at night. We have great medical care, different options for transportation, and we take this for granted, but we have the ability to pick up God's word and read it for ourselves. I bring these things up because there are billions of people in the world today who don't have access to things like these. So when we take a step back and we look at the bigger picture, you and I are some of the wealthiest people on the planet. 
authors Stephen Corbett and Brian Ficker, they wrote about how the standard of living that's so common for Americans today is extremely uncommon throughout human history. This is what they wrote. At no time in history has there ever been greater economic disparity in the world than at the present. And then speaking specifically about present day Americans, so this is talking about you and I, they concluded that by any measure, we are the richest people ever to walk on planet earth. I think it's hard to wrap our minds around this. It's hard to understand this, but when most people in the world today hear the word wealthy or the word rich, they actually picture people like you, like me, like the community that we're a part of and our church family. Now, it needs to be said that nowhere in God's word does it say that it's sinful to accumulate wealth. But I do want to be honest with you this morning, and I want to share some verses with you uh, that show us the multiple warnings that God's word gives us about the dangers that wealth can have on our eternity. Here's just a few verses that highlight what I'm talking about. 1 Timothy chapter 6, 9 and 10, it says, But people who long to be rich fall into temptation and are trapped by many foolish and harmful desires that plunge them into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And some people craving money have wandered from the true faith and pierced themselves with many sorrows. Here's another passage that highlights this truth. James chapter 5 verses 1 through 3. It says, look here you rich people, weep and groan with anguish because of all the terrible troubles ahead of you. Your wealth is rotting away, and your fine clothes are moth-eaten rags. Your gold and silver are corroded. The very wealth you were counting on will eat away your flesh like fire. This corroded treasure you've hoarded will testify against you on the day of judgment. And that's pretty harsh. And then Mark chapter 10, verse 23, And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. You know, we almost always think of wealth as a blessing. In fact, I would say that's really how we've been raised to to think. We raise our kids that way. We say, you know, if you go to college, you you graduate, you get the right job, you make the right amount of money. I mean, that's a a blessing, right? That's God blessing your life. We, We almost always think of wealth as a blessing. But Jesus warns us that wealth can be a barrier to the kingdom. In fact, I would say that our relationship with money can actually keep us out of heaven. And that's why when God's word addresses money, and it often does, the primary concern is not your wealth. It's not the amount of money that you have. The primary concern is your heart. In Matthew chapter 6, verse 21, Jesus said, For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. In other words, your relationship with money, how you choose to accumulate money and spend money, that reveals where your heart is. And friends, because God cares about our hearts more than anything else, he often talks about our relationship to money, our relationship to wealth in his word. You know, having a financial expert in your life, someone like Dave Ramsey or maybe a local person that you know and trust, that can be helpful and that's not wrong. But we need to listen to God's wisdom in this area more than we listen to the financial experts who write books, teach seminars and end up profiting off of other people's desire to experience financial freedom. So for the sake of our own walk with Christ and for the health of our church, we need a biblical perspective on giving and generosity. So an important question for today, really the overarching question is this, what is sacrificial generosity and what does it look like in our lives today? 
I mean, you and I have this powerful example of the first century church, uh, but why, how, where, and what happens when we sacrificially give? So why do we give? Who should give? Where do we give? And what happens when we give? I'm going to take a short detour today, um, only because uh, these are some topics that have been pretty prominent in our culture over the past couple of years. So I want to I say this, that things like socialism and communism, uh, this is not God's design for generosity. These things are the forced distribution of wealth and are stealing. Socialism and communism, you hear a lot about that these days. That's not God's design for generosity. If you want a working definition for sacrificial generosity, I would say that it's recognizing a need and voluntarily giving to help meet that need. Sacrificial generosity is 2 Corinthians 9-7 generosity, where it says you must each decide in your own heart how much to give. And don't give reluctantly or in response to pressure, for God loves a person who gives cheerfully. So sacrificial generosity is first and foremost a heart issue. It's giving cheerfully, not reluctantly or in response to pressure. It's not the forced distribution of wealth. It's certainly not stealing. It's giving cheerfully, joyfully. It's a heart issue. We read from Acts chapter 2. We can clearly see how these first century Christians were sacrificially generous. But just a few chapters later in Acts chapter 4, We're given more details about how these believers were doing things like selling homes, selling land and possessions, and bringing the money to the church. Now, they did this in order to meet the needs that other people had. And as a result of their generosity, God's word tells us that there wasn't a single needy person among them. I think that's amazing. Well, years later, there was a severe famine in Jerusalem, and the Christian church that was located there was really struggling. In response to their struggle and in response to this famine, the Apostle Paul decided to partner with other churches to collect a love offering that would be used to help these struggling Christians. In fact, he wrote a letter to the Christians in Corinth telling them about how he was going to visit them and how he would collect these funds to help the church in Jerusalem. These are the instructions that he gave in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verses 1 through 4. Paul writes, Now, regarding your question about the money being collected for God's people in Jerusalem, you should follow the same procedure I gave to the churches in Galatia. So we see that Paul has given this instruction before. It's not meant for just one church. He says, on the first day of each week, you should each put aside a portion of the money you've earned. Don't wait until I get there and then try to collect it all at once. And when I come, I will write letters of recommendation for the messengers you choose to deliver your gift to Jerusalem. And if it seems appropriate for me to go along, they can travel with me. So Paul's instructions to the Christians in Corinth um, were to set aside a portion of their income and to give a gift on the first day of each week that would end up being set aside for the work that God wanted them to do. I believe that these instructions also apply to God's people today. So whether you're retired, whether you're in the middle of your working career, you might be a student, a single person, maybe you're married with a family, You might consider yourself to be doing financially well or struggling to make ends meet. But regardless of the season that you're in, God's instruction on giving and generosity are relevant to your life. For the last half of today's message, I'd like to address a few common questions that people tend to have about giving and generosity and how God's word speaks to these questions. 
So if you happen to be taking notes, the first question that we're going to address is this. Why do we give? Why do we give? I think that's an important question. And there are a couple of scriptural answers to this question. Uh, The first is this. We give as an expression of our worship to God. We give as an expression of our worship to God. So the church in Corinth was instructed to give on the first day of each week. The church met together on Sundays to worship, to hear from God's word. And God instructed them to set aside an offering when they gathered. Now, we don't give on Sundays just because it's convenient. It certainly is. You know, that's the one time during the week that the entire church is together. Um, It is convenient, but that's not the only reason why we give on Sundays. The church takes up an offering on Sundays because it's been the practice of God's people since the church was first formed nearly 2,000 years ago. And like anything else that we do consistently, um, giving each week can easily become a mindless routine. If we're not careful, um, that consistent giving can just become a religious ritual, right? It loses its meaning. But I want to remind you today that when we give, And when we do so generously and consistently, something very special is taking place. Um, We're acknowledging that God is Lord of our lives. We're acknowledging that he's Lord over the wealth that he's given us and that he's Lord over his church. We're also acknowledging that he's so much more valuable than the things that we have in this life. So you and I, we choose to freely give because we know that God is more satisfying and greater than anything that money can buy. The offering that we bring and that we give as individuals and as families is an extension of our worship each week. And that's what I'd like for our church to uh, start thinking about, is that when we give, it's an act of worship. The second scriptural reason for why we give is this. And we give as an overflow of God's grace in our lives. We give as an overflow of God's grace in our lives. I didn't know this until this week when I was studying this passage, but I think this is a really cool truth. Um, the word gift in 1 Corinthians 16.3, uh, when Paul wrote that when I come, I'll write letters of recommendation for the messengers you choose to deliver your gift to Jerusalem. That word gift uh, is the Greek word charis, which means grace. I think that is so cool. So this word gift means grace. Um, you see, Paul wasn't demanding that people give. This wasn't a forceful distribution of wealth. These people gave because they were compelled by God's grace to give. You and I don't give because we're forced to give. We give because we want to. Remember, 2 Corinthians 9, 7 says, You must each decide in your heart how much to give. And don't give reluctantly or in response to pressure. For God loves a person who gives cheerfully. So we don't give forcefully, we give cheerfully. We give freely because of what God has done in our lives. In fact, we're overwhelmed by God's grace, so in response, we give. Before coming to faith in Christ, each and every one of us were lost and spiritually dead in our sin. That's what the Bible teaches us. But God loves us so much that he sent his son Jesus to come and live the life that we could never live, to die the death that only we deserve because of our sin. And then... Three days later, Jesus rose from the grave, defeating sin and death. And now through trusting in Jesus, God gives us his gift of grace, his gift of forgiveness and eternal life. You know, my wife likes to say that Jesus is God's rescue plan. And I think that is awesome. God's grace freely poured out on us is why we give when the church gathers on Sunday. We give as an overflow of God's grace in our lives. 
So those are two scriptural reasons for why we give. Let's move on to the second question, if you're taking notes, and that is, who should give? Who should give? I think the answer to this question is pretty simple, and that is that every follower of Jesus, every follower of Jesus is called by God to give generously. In 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 2, Paul writes, On the first day of each week, you should each put aside a portion of the money you've earned. That word each, I underlined it in my notes. It's very important. You should each put aside a portion of the money you've earned. So this letter wasn't just written to the members of this particular church who were financially well off. It wasn't just a small group of people. This letter was written for every follower of Jesus. It was intended to be passed around to the various churches throughout the area. So at the church in Corinth, there definitely were people who were well off, and there were also people who were very poor. Yet everybody was encouraged to give. And friends, it's the same for all of God's people today. We should give generously because the same God has given all of us his gift of grace, and the same God is Lord of our lives. So if you're a Christian, if you're in Christ, everything that you have, your possessions, your plans, your dreams, these things belong to Jesus. In fact, we have these things only because God has chosen to give them to us. And we're called to faithfully steward the things that God has given us. And I would say that part of faithful stewardship is faithful, consistent generosity. So as followers of Jesus, we're encouraged to give generously. So who should give? I believe that all Christians are called to give. Question number three, uh, where should we give? Where should we give? This is a question that I hear uh, quite often. You know, Christians should prioritize giving to and through the local church first, and then we give elsewhere as we're led. Sometimes this is referred to as first fruits giving. It's giving off the top and not giving God our leftovers. The offering that we read about in 1 Corinthians 16 was for the Christians in Jerusalem, and it was collected in the church in Corinth. Every individual or family would bring their gifts to the church on the first day of the week, and then the church would set aside these offerings for a specific purpose. Now, we said last week that we were never meant to go through life alone. That is, we're not created to live a life of isolation, especially as followers of Jesus. For whatever reason, we sometimes have the idea, we have the belief that we're on our own in this area of giving and generosity. And what I mean is is this, we decide that we'll give wherever and however we want because it's our money to give. I want you to understand, it's not wrong at certain times and for certain reasons to give outside the church. In fact, my wife and I do this every month. But it's important to recognize that God's word puts a clear priority on giving to and through the local church first. This is the example that we see not only in the passage that we're reading today, but throughout the New Testament. We're called to cheerfully and sacrificially give. We do that individually and as families so that collectively, as the body of Christ, we can accomplish the work that God has given us. This kind of generosity um, also preserves unity in the church because we're working towards a common goal. In the same way that God has not called us to live an isolated faith, we're also not called to be isolated givers. We give together in and through the local church, and as a church family, we prayerfully decide how these various gifts will be used. So as gifts are given, as people give their offering and their their tithe, it's important for the church to steward these resources faithfully. 
You know, they're meant to be used in specific ways. I would say primarily to support the work that's being done in and through the local church uh, to help spread the gospel around the world and to meet the needs that people have. So when you give, these, these funds don't just help keep the lights on. You're giving with open hands and you're, you're trusting that God is able to take whatever you give and multiply it. You know, our God is a God of multiplication and he uses that for far greater things than what you and I could do on our own. He goes to the various ministries in our church to teach people about the Lord and to help them grow in their faith. He goes all over the world to support various missions that we support who are on the ground level, in the trenches, teaching people about Christ, spreading the gospel. He goes to our partner college, Lincoln Christian University. I would say, as your pastor, I have no idea who gives what in the church. You know, I have access to the same information that you guys do each week. I know the total amount that's given, but I have no idea who gives. And we've set that up for a specific reason. And I think the main reason is that when we talk about giving and generosity, I can do so without looking out across our church knowing who gives what. I can just share what God's word has to say. So as gifts are given, it's important for the church to steward these resources faithfully. They're used in specific ways. When you give, you're giving to help God's church accomplish the work that God has given us through the various ministries in the church. So we're called to give in and through the church. And God takes these gifts, he multiplies them, and he uses them for far greater things than we ever could on our own. That leads us to the fourth and final question. What happens when we give? What happens when we give? So when you and I invest the money that God has given us, Um, we look for the best possible guarantee for a return, right? Well, we do this because we want to make sure that our money is being invested well and that it's going to end up bringing a good return. We want to spend our money wisely. So if you faithfully give in obedience to God's word, um, there are at least three guarantees that you can count on from Scripture. The first is that giving guarantees that your heart will be changed, that your heart will be changed. Jesus said, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So if you primarily spend your money on the things of this world, then that's where your heart's going to be. You know, if you want to kind of gauge where your heart's at, just look at your bank statement. See how you spend your money. That'll tell you where your heart's at. If you spend your money on the things of God, if you invest in eternal things, then your heart will be for him and for the things that honor him. So giving guarantees that your heart will be changed. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Second, giving guarantees that the church will be edified. So as we give in and through the church, the church is, is edified, it's strengthened, it's built up to be what God has called it to be. And we're able to do more ministry in our own community and around the world because of it. Your, your generosity literally helps change lives. When you say yes to being used by God in this way, it literally helps change lives. So giving guarantees that the church will be edified. And then finally, giving guarantees that God will be glorified that God will be glorified. And I would say that's the main thing. What's the best way to fight the idolatry of money in our culture and the love of money in our own hearts? I think the best way to fight these things is to freely and generously give as God has called us to give. Because as we give, God is glorified. The church is edified. It's you know, strengthened and built up. And our hearts are changed because we put God first and we value the things that he values. This church has always been a generous church. You know, we have been here almost three years, and it's been an extremely generous church since we've been here and long before that. 
I believe this is one area where we're healthy. But today I want to encourage you to continue to pray about your giving and pray about how God might stretch you and use you in this next season to sacrificially give as we work together to accomplish the good works that he's prepared in advance for us to do. So an essential mark that all healthy churches have in common is sacrificial generosity. And like anything else in the church, um, it takes all of us. We've all got to do our part.